1899, excuse me, in 1889, a Cambridge professor made a startling discovery in the deserts of Egypt. He was at Mount Sinai, having been given access to the archives of St. Catherine's Monastery there. St. Catherine's, for those who might not be familiar, is the oldest continually inhabited monastery in the entire church. The monastery itself, the buildings, they're almost 1,500 years old. But the community that has lived there is even centuries older than that. Importantly for this professor, St. Catherine's also has the oldest continuing operating library in the world. This explains why he was so far from home. As he was working his way through the library's archives, he came across a document written in old Syriac. And as he read it, he suddenly realized that he was holding something that had been lost for a thousand years. The document was a letter written in the year 125 to the Roman Emperor Hadrian. The original author of it was a philosopher from Athens, Greece, named Aristides, who had become convinced of the truth of Christianity and converted. His letter to the emperor was a defense of the faith. Not so much an attempt to convince Hadrian that Christianity was, in fact, the one true faith, although certainly Aristides would have believed that, but instead to convince him that Christianity makes for good people, which means good neighbors and therefore good citizens. The man from Cambridge recognized what he was holding only because other authors all the way up through the ninth century would make mention of Aristides' letter in their own works and talk about just how important it was in the life of the early church. If you'd like to read it, it's actually online, translated into English there for the finding, and it's worth looking up. But this morning, I will just quote a small piece. Lies, Aristides writes, are not found among them. They love one another. They never fail to help widows. They save orphans from those who would harm them. If they have something, they give freely to those who have nothing without boasting. If they see an outsider, they take him into their homes and treat him like family. And if there are ever any among them who are poor and needy and they don't themselves have enough food to share, then they will fast for a day or two so that they are able to feed their neighbor. It's a beautiful account of the life of the church, of the faith of the church. 
And while it might be from a different period in the church's history, we have a classic example of the same generosity of spirit represented on the cover of our order of worship this morning. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, it is a drawing of the scene of St. Martin of Tours dividing his cloak between himself and the poor beggar. Martin, you see, was the son of a retired officer in the Roman military. The bad news for him was that that meant that he, by law, was required to enlist himself. The good news, however, was that that meant that he would go into the cavalry and not the infantry. Although raised under the Roman gods, as a teenager, Martin began the process of converting to Christianity. All of this then sets the stage for the famous story about his cloak. When he was 18, Martin was stationed with his cavalry unit up in what is now northern France. It was winter at the time. It was terribly cold. As he rode along, he saw a beggar there in the streets, half naked and very clearly freezing. He watched as everybody else around him simply ignored this man. But Martin knew that something needed to be done. So he climbed down from his mount, he drew his sword, and he cut his own cloak in half, thereby giving the man a blanket to cover himself with. This action would have meant several things for Martin. One, it meant that he himself would have less coverage and therefore be less warm as the night wore on. Two, it meant that he looked ridiculous with only half of a cloak hanging from his shoulders. And three, it would have inevitably angered his commanding officer since this cloak was a part of his military uniform. But Martin wasn't worried about those things. Because for whatever it might have meant for him, it meant everything in the world for this poor man. That night, as the story goes, he had a dream. In it, he saw a group of angels gathered around a man wearing the torn half of his cloak. And in the dream, he realized that the man was Jesus. Not even yet baptized, Jesus said to the angels. And yet Martin has already clothed me with his garment. My friends, it has been said that the church is the only organization on earth that exists not for its members, but instead for its non-members. Now, in full disclosure, I'm not completely sure what I think about that quote. Certainly, we are all called to care for our neighbors, but we are also called to care for one another as well. So I think it would be better to say That the church exists for the sake of its members and its non-members alike. 
And yet what I think that that line is actually getting at is the truth that here in this place, we learn the importance and in fact, we learn the actual value of being generous people. Of not looking out for number one. Of not first and foremost being about ourselves, but instead looking out for one another and for serving one another and for loving one another, whether they are members here or not. Take a look at this morning's gospel lesson. Jesus in the synagogue at Capernaum. Capernaum was a fishing village on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. It's a beautiful spot. And if you go there, you can see the archaeological remains of the first century synagogue where this story takes place. In the story, Jesus does two things. He teaches and he heals. It's the two things, in fact, that Jesus always does. He teaches and he heals. Jesus goes into the synagogue and he tells the people there about the good news of God's love. And then before he leaves, he sees a man who is in need and he helps him. I would like to submit to y'all this morning that this small scene from Mark, that these two actions bound together in these few verses, reveal a deep truth about our faith. And it is simply that they are together. That the teaching and the healing are together, that the faith and the works are together, the word and the deed are together, that Jesus tells the people there in Capernaum about the good news. And then Jesus shows them that good news by helping a man in need. He helps them to better understand God's love through his words, and then he helps them better understand through his actions as well. And the two, my friends, the two can't be separate. Within Christianity, belief and action cannot be separated. Jesus teaching and healing in Capernaum. Martin contemplating the truth of the Christian faith and then cutting his own cloak in half so that a stranger might stay warm at night. Aristides writing to the emperor explaining what the church believes, how the church members love one another, how they love their neighbors as themselves, how they love them like family. How their love doesn't just exist in their head or, or in their heart, but it's in their hands. And it's in their feet. It's in their actions. It's not just what they say, it's, it's what they do. 
Frederick Buechner once wrote, Christian belief, he says, Christian belief does not leave you cold like believing that the world is round. It stirs your blood like believing that the world is a miracle. It affects who you are and what you do with your life, like believing that your house is on fire. Or believing that somebody loves you. All of this, of course, y'all know. HAB is not a church that just talks about life, but is in fact a church that loves. We love one another. We love our neighbors. The foundation of this place, the founding commitment of this church was love of our neighbors. The campus was built to be shared with neighbors. Those of us who have inherited it maintain it so that we can share it with our neighbors. Through Little Friends and Hacka, little children come here and learn what it means to be classmates and teammates, good friends and good sports. Every week, several times a week, to be honest, we open up our classrooms to Catholic charities so that they can help immigrants improve their lives, improve their language skills, so that they can navigate the society better, get better jobs, better provide for their family, improve their understanding of this country so that they can pass the tests and become citizens themselves. We feed people here who are hungry. We help people find housing who are homeless. We serve with local partners and we donate thousands and thousands of dollars to support their ministries. We do all of this and we do more. And all the while, as we are doing these things, we remind ourselves and we remind one another and we show our children that having accepted the grace of God in Jesus Christ for ourselves, we now have the calling to share that grace and show that grace to all of our neighbors around us. So again, we, we know this. But because we know this so well, there are several other things that we know alongside it. We know that we cannot do these things alone. Some of that is because the needs in this world are genuinely just that large, bigger than any one of us could try to tackle on our own. So it takes a team. Some of that is because we're not really supposed to try or be able to do it on our own. We're supposed to do it as a team. Even Jesus, when he walked the earth, formed a team of disciples around him to help him in his ministry. 
So we're not supposed to do it alone. We're supposed to do it together as family. We don't talk about this enough these days, but we should. One of the great gifts of the church, one of the great gifts of God's kingdom is that it draws us together in community. It gives us a family that loves us. It gives us a family that we can love in return. So no, we're not supposed to do it by ourselves. No, we could not do it by ourselves, even if we wanted to. But because we have committed ourselves to do it, there is a third thing that we know as well. And that is that there are times, my friends, when each and every one of us simply will not want to do the work. There will be times when we feel like we do not have the energy or we tell ourselves that we don't have the capacity to love and to serve as we know that we ought to. There will be days, weeks, months even, entire seasons of life when we as individuals will not live into the call that we have accepted as Christians as we should, and while that might not be great, it's also not unexpected. And so what an incredible gift to be part of a church, to not need to try and do for ourselves, to not always have to try and do it on our own, to have brothers and sisters to work with, brothers and sisters to encourage us when we are down, to, to pick up the slack when maybe we are not at our individual best. And quite frankly, what a great gift to have brothers and sisters to watch over us support us and to ask us to do things like we are about to do here in a moment. Fill out and turn in a pledge card to help us, in other words, thoughtfully reflect on how we and our households support the missions and the ministries of this good place and then help us keep track of that commitment month over month for the rest of the year. It seems like such a small thing, administrative, bureaucratic even, just one more piece of paperwork to fill out. And yet it is actually just one more way for our church family to encourage us in our walk with Christ. To make sure that what we hold in here and what we hold in here lives and breathes out here as well. Because, friends, that's, that's what we do here. We celebrate God's love, we share God's love, and we spread God's love together as one church. 
we change the lives of people all around us, people that we know, people whom we don't know, people whom we may never see in our lives. People here in Jacksonville and people literally all around the world. And in the meantime, as we do these things together, we find that our lives get changed in the process as well. Thanks be to God.